The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. to see Jesus. That is the prayer. Thank you, Meg, very, very much. Well, as we come to this time of, uh, of study in our sermon, I just want to invite you to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 this morning, if you're visiting. Um, we have just finished up in the month of October, kind of taking a break from our study of the book of Mark as we've gone through and looked at uh, the five solos of the Reformation. There will be a quiz on this afterwards, just so you know. Uh, those are, of course, the five solas being uh, sola gratia, we're saved by grace, we're saved by sola fide, faith alone, we're saved by solus Christus, Christ alone, we're saved by, as the scripture describes, scripture alone, and as Aaron, and I think Aaron, I, Aaron, are you here? I, don't, I haven't seen him yet today, somewhere here. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much for bringing the word last week, as he did a great job, and, and, and church, thank you for your willingness for young men to be able to preach in this pulpit. It's not only good for their growth, but it's, it's challenging to hear the words that come from young men. And at 21 years of old age, Aaron has much more depth than I ever thought I had at that age, or at least that, that I perceived that I did. So praise God for his faithfulness. And uh, uh, he is now the second tallest man to preach in the pulpit since Dr. McAlpin, for those who were here for those days, uh, as Aaron is very, very tall. Well, this morning and through the month of November, we're going we're gonna to circle back to continue the slow trudge through Mark. And uh, I just want you to know, those of you who are with us for the 12 Apostle Study, the last time I looked at Mark, we went through three verses in 12 weeks last time. Guys, we're going to do 10 verses today. That, wow, I know, whoa, uh, the Spirit is moving among Darren's sermon preparation or something. So, uh, but we will do those things to God's glory. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage with focus especially on Mark chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. Asking a question, is it possible that there is a sin that you could commit that can never be forgiven? And what I want to show you, and Amy's going to bring this up, about 10 years ago, it's hard to believe YouTube, how many of y'all use YouTube, just out of curiosity, most of y'all, came to be 10 years ago, 2006, 2007. This was one of the first major viral videos you're about to watch, and I want you to take close note. This is an atheist group. This is not a Christian group, but it relates to our sermon. So take just a moment, watch it, and I'll come back and give some intro as we start the sermon. months ago I was a Christian. Through basic observation of the world around me and logical thinking, I have come to the conclusion that alongside the fact that there is no Santa Claus and there is no Easter Bunny, there is also no God. So without further ado, my name's Chandler and I deny the existence of the Holy Spirit. I 
deny God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. The Rational Response Squad wants you to make a short video declaring your independence from the Stone Age. Shoot your video and upload it to YouTube, and we'll send you a free copy of the hit documentary, The God Who Wasn't There, on DVD. Wow. Happy Sunday. This is out there, and this is what people believe. Do you, does anyone remember seeing this about 10 years ago? People would take a piece of paper, and they'd write on there called, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And they'd take YouTube videos of this, literally hundreds of thousands of videos. Go YouTube it. Not right now. Don't go on the internet right now. But wait, because this is what's happening outside. The Rational Response Squad, which ironically doesn't exist anymore, uh, uh, ironically enough, believe a verse of Scripture that so many Christians just gloss over, just say, well, there's not much to it. Friends, I want to look at that today because this is what verse-by-verse study of the Bible does for you. It allows you to hit text that most of us would just say, yeah, let's just skip over Leviticus, woo, let's jump over that, and definitely this verse. Because the question is, if there's a sin that God cannot forgive you for, why are you here? And if God cannot forgive you for a certain sin, why try? Because, I mean, it, it, this, is, this is serious stuff. I mean, this is the Bible. But Jesus' own words say that there is a sin that you can commit that will eternally condemn you forever. Whoa. And for many in this room, you've had this thought. Is there something I've done, Lord, that has so put me outside your grace that I can no longer be called a Christian? Or for some non-Christians, I remember getting a letter several years ago when I used to write an online devotional that became a book, uh, the Daily Message devotional, that uh, someone wrote about this. He said, Darren, and I have this email in my inbox from 2005, if I committed the sin, then why am I still feeling like there is a God? Friends, if you're feeling like there's still a God, that is great news for you. Because the people who commit the sin have no desire for God whatsoever. So what is the unforgivable sin? Well, first off, look at the verse. Richard, thank you for reading, brother, these verses this morning. Psalm 130 reminds us, and this is so great, but there is forgiveness with you. Do you believe God forgives? He does, doesn't he? He better. But here's the other side of that. What is the unforgivable sin? It is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Can a Christian commit that? Can can a non-Christian commit that? We're going to look at that today. Because the Jews were telling the people of Jesus' day that they're, this Jesus guy's of the devil. And if he's of the devil, then don't believe a thing that he's saying because he's just kooky anyway. So is there an unforgivable sin? Here's the big idea. Guys, the only unforgivable sin is that you won't allow God to forgive you. Do you see that? What is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? It is getting to the point where you are so hard-hearted that you want nothing to do with God himself. But God can save anyone. He can. But guys, we're going to look at this. There is a point, scripturally speaking, of no return for some people. Whoa. So do these people up on the screen that post these little videos that say there's no, there's blasphemy and all these things, could God still save them? Yes, I believe he can. But there comes a point of no return. It gets pretty serious, doesn't it? Because we're going to see the greatness of God's forgiveness on one verse, and then we're going to go right to the other side and see the other side. 
It's amazing. How many you all? Some of y'all know the way of the master, Ray Comfort, Kirk Cameron. Some of y'all have heard of those guys before. These guys actually debated Kirk Cameron and Ray Comfort, and that that debate is online. But I can tell you that this went viral because it was a big deal. Anything you heard that guy? Well, if there's no Santa Claus, there's no bunny rabbit, there's no tooth fairy. Surely there isn't a god. Well, that's just bad logic anyway. That's guilt by association. But friends, I'm here to tell you that God does forgive. I'm here to tell you there is a real God. I'm here to tell you that he loves you and he cares for you just where you are. What an awesome God that is. Three observations today. Uh, I don't often open with videos. I thank you for the grace to do that. But there is an unpardonable sin, but it's only refusing God. But I want to give you three observations from Mark 3, 28, 29. As we look at this and continue through Mark first, There is the seriousness of the Son, Jesus Christ, but there's a scope of forgiveness. And then I want to look at what the unforgivable sin is not and what the unforgivable sin is. Terrible outline for a seminary classroom, but I think it's practical for our text this morning. So will you join me, if you're able this morning, in standing reading, starting in Mark chapter 3 and verse 20. Mark chapter 3 and verse 20. We're not going to read through the names of all the apostles. We've done that enough. You've got them all memorized, I know, in order. But uh, to God's glory, we will start in verse 20 of Mark chapter 3. That's page 838 if you need the Blue Pew Bible. And please feel free to use that. No shame. Take it if you need one. Rather, you have the Word of God than not. Mark chapter 3 and verse 20. Then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, seize Jesus, for they were saying, he's out of his mind, he's crazy. And verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And Jesus called them to him and said in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, verse 25, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, verse 27, unless he first binds him and binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And the next two verses are our focus today. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30, and they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Jesus' family thinks he's nuts. (laughs) The religious people think he's possessed by Satan himself, or is Satan himself. And at the very end, the last comment they said is he has an unclean spirit, which means, boy, lock him up in a straitjacket, put him in a padded room because he is really off his rocker, is the modern-day translation. What is the unforgivable sin? Have you committed it? Can you commit it? What is it? Why is this practical to you? That's what we're going to look at today. Let's pray as we go. Father, thank you so much. Lord, I pray for those folks who even 10 years ago, some of them probably in their 30s, they were mostly young college students as I was at that time or seminary students. Father, uh, I pray for those folks, Lord, who have become so hard-hearted, Lord, if there be time in your providence and your, your, your sovereign plan that they would come to Christ, that, Lord, you would draw out the Pauls from out among the persecutors of the church. You would draw out, Lord, uh, the, the, those at, at, at Acts 17 the, of the great council. Some of them sneered at Paul's message, but some of them believed. 
Father, you know those family members in our lives, those neighbors, those cashiers we see all the time when we order the same drink at Starbucks or whatever it is who just laugh at us because we are Christians. Father, it's by your sovereign grace working in the hearts of people that are drawing them unto you themselves. Father, give us comfort through this passage, give us challenge, but most of all, give us clarity by your spirit. Father, I pray for your words today, not mine. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Well, this morning, the three observations, and uh, we'll look mainly, and if you're taking notes, I'm going to look for this stool here, and uh, that's all right. Uh, as we're, if you're taking notes, uh, this is not the easiest note-taking thing. This is not usually how I'd even preach a sermon, but I want you to know what this is talking about. Because many of you here have struggled with this. I mean, really struggled with this. Lord, have I done something to get outside of your love for me in Jesus Christ? And I want to be sensitive to that. And there are many non-Christians who have walked away, so to speak, of interest in the Christian faith because they say, well, look, in my young days, I did a lot of crazy things and said a lot of things I wish I could take back, but I don't know what it is. So I want to look at this because there's so much to this passage. But you just saw that Jesus gave, uh, in earlier verses as we studied, the, tw- the commission to the 12 disciples. He's called them out. And again, Jesus' family says he's crazy. And then in verse t- 29, we get down to, what is the unforgivable sin? And we see that in all these things, God is in control. I don't know if anyone's ever told you, you act like the devil. But Jesus didn't take that lightly. He told them very two stark truths. And I want to look at the positive first, and I want to look at the last two points of the seriousness of the negative, so to speak. First, in verse 28, look at the seriousness of the son. I want you to note this. Look back at verse 28. He says to them, and some of you have this in your Bible differently. Uh, Some of you may have the old King James, verily, verily, I say unto you. Uh, The modern translations, the ESV says, truly, I say to you. Don't skip over that. This is where Jesus gets very, very serious. Jesus, for the first time in this gospel, as far as we know, as far as I know, shows us that he is going to tell them something more extraordinary, more amazing, and more uplifted than anything else he could tell them. This phrase, truly I say to you, or verily, verily I say to you, is only used by Jesus in the Bible itself. Jesus takes these words very seriously. What does it mean? Well, it's found only in the Gospels, and what it means is truly means amen. If you've ever said amen, whether that's amen, uh, thank you, for Lord, for this food, or amen, the Chiefs beat the Broncos, or amen, whatever it is, you are saying that, yes, truly, that is true. And what Jesus is telling them, he's basically saying to them, amen, amen, listen, And what he's doing is saying that everything I am about to say to you is utterly true. And what he's about to tell them is of primary importance. Everything I say is true, but some things he says are even more important than others. So I want to know and remind you of this, and Amy will put it up. Before we apply this and get deeper, the seriousness of Jesus here is that don't judge the authority of Jesus by the breaking news of the day. God is in control. Can you imagine what these disciples were facing? They were facing this great commission they were given in the earlier verses we looked at through the summer months, and all of a sudden they come up and his family's calling him crazy. His, the religious leaders are calling him crazy, and if you're like me, you're thinking, oh, are you really crazy? I, who are you, man? You're kind of funny. Where'd you come from? And 
it's a great reminder as he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, don't worry that they're calling me the devil. Listen to what I have to say. And when you look around you today and all the things that are going on, you can easily think, man, what is God doing? God is still in control. Aren't you grateful for that? When your family gets medical report after medical report, your bills do this, your bills do that, your nation does this, and your nation does that, God is the constant amongst, amidst all those things. And what he is telling them is that your eternal destiny rests on what I have to say. It's serious. Listen up. I'm going to bend your ear. I'm going to do more than bend your ear. I'm going to throw you to the ground until you get what I'm saying. He who has ears, let him hear. Don't you love that phrase? It's a great parenting phrase. He who has ears, let them hear. You know, our, our kids are to the stage where I'm starting to take their imaginary ears off and I'll give, you know, Scarlett's ears to Simeon and Simeon will give Scarlett's back. And Scarlett gets really upset because she never seems to get her ears back. But it is what it is. What Jesus is telling them is that this is serious. It is serious. Listen up. Don't trust the news of the day. Listen to what I have to say. It's most important. The second, I want you to see the scope of his forgiveness. Look back at verse 28. So he gives that intro, truly, truly. But this is what he's going to tell them that's more important than anything else. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. That's the scope of God's forgiveness. Did you note that word? He didn't say 94% of your sins will be forgiven. He didn't say 93% if you follow this or that and the other and you fill in the rest of that forgiveness. It's all on him. Truly, all sins will be forgiven. Aren't you grateful for that? Here is the infinite wisdom of God's forgiving mercy. Now, we've got to be careful with this. Again, as most people would do, some would say, well, Darren, isn't this just teaching us universalism? I mean, isn't this just saying that everyone's going to be saved? I mean, everyone's going to come to Christ? No, not at all. There's too many verses, including the next one, that say otherwise. Matthew 7 tells us, Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty three, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Matthew ten twenty eight, God will cast them into the lake of fire forever and ever who reject his name. Hell is where the worm never dies. It's literally where there is in outer darkness that you are held in, in chains of bondage. But before he gets to that, he reminds us how vast and how wide the sin is forgiven. And that's why we never interpret one verse from one verse. You know, if you're, uh, if you're like most of us and you say something you wish you could take back, imagine if people pinned your whole life on that one phrase that you said. How would you feel? You'd feel pretty ridiculous, wouldn't you? Because you said something off-color that you wish you could take back. That's why we never interpret one verse from one verse. We interpret a verse from the Bible. And the Bible reminds us, doesn't it? Maybe you know this verse. Romans 10, 17. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10, 17. The qualifier to get all this forgiveness of verse 28, the seriousness of the Son, the scope of forgiveness, is whosoever. You have to repent. You personally have to turn from your sin and trust Jesus. And that's a crazy claim of infinite forgiveness. What a reminder to us, as you see up there, that no sin ever outruns the grace of God. Well, Pastor, what about verse 29? Well, we'll get there. But friends, there's no sin that outruns the grace of God. That's awesome. You think about Jonah. What a knucklehead that guy was. 
Jonah, the prophet, heard the word of the Lord, and then he runs away, he gets sucked up by a big fish, and then he gets spit out in chapter 2, verse 10, and then in verse chapter 3, verse 1, he hears the word of the Lord again. Thank God that it came for a second time. Chapter 3, verse 1. There is no sin inside of you, no evil outside of you that lies or lives beyond the borders of the power of the amazing God. So before we get to the terror, and I mean that word intentionally, of verse 29, bask in the greatness, the forgiveness of verse 28. When you think about this, all the sins of your youth will be forgiven. All those times mom said, take out the trash, and you kept playing your video games. Yep, that was me. Or whatever it was. Maybe yours was worse than that. I don't, Whatever. All the sins of your college years. All the sins of the head, the tongue, the body, fully and completely are forgiven in Jesus' name. Adultery, murder, abortion, homosexuality, porn, suicide, persecuting the church and other believers, fill in the blank, can be forgiven. It's so great. God says in Isaiah 118, Come, let us reason together. Those your sins be like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more is what Romans tells us. You are a great sinner, but God is a great Savior. I love that word. If you're an underliner, I've been telling you more about this. If you're an underliner, verse 28, note that word, all sins. Friends, this is why you don't need to confess sins to me. This is why you don't need to confess sins to a church. This is why you don't need to confess sins to your friends online in in a Facebook group that's locked where no one can see you. You take your sins to Jesus and leave them at the cross. You know, yes, there are sins between you and another person. You need to go ask forgiveness for those or receive forgiveness, which is even harder than asking sometimes. But you take your sin to the only one, Jesus Christ, who can forgive you. That is the scope and seriousness of this. And that word forgiven there, you probably have that word, literally means to send away or to send forth. And it, he tells us that the blasphemies that we utter, which means to speak injurious things to people, will be forgiven. We have taken, and, and Jesus just tells it straight up, look, all of us have blasphemed against God in some way, but he says even that will be enough to be forgiven. God forgave the adultery of David. God forgave Abraham's lying and deception. God forgave Moses as a murderer. He forgave Paul as a murderer. He forgave Peter for denying Christ both before he was died and after with the Gentiles. He forgave Noah the drunk. He forgave Aaron of idolatry. He forgave that knucklehead Jonah of leaving God's will. And the forgiveness of God is here today by his grace. There's no sin so big that you can't come to the cross. If you're here today and you're a Christian, truly you know you're a Christian and you are wallowing in that. Friend, may I remind you that Romans 8, 1 says that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. What great forgiveness that is. When Satan throws all the arrows of doubt against you, you have Christ and Christ alone. That's the positive. Are you ready for the curveball? Look back at verse 29. What the unforgivable sin is not. Look back at verse 29. I want to work this with you. Verse 29 says that, but, but, there's a but. Usually you see a but God, but this is a negative but here, so to speak. But whoever blasphemes or uses injurious words against the Holy Spirit or, or never has forgiveness. Stop right there. Verse 28 said, all sins will be forgiven. Future tense, but also application to now in the past. 
but now in verse 29, whoever blasphemes never has forgiveness. Not if you pay for indulgences, not if you pay the pastor, not if you pay your way to heaven, not if you try and do good things, never has forgiveness. Wow. Is Jesus just like a, with respect, is Jesus is bipolar here? I mean, really, is he saying, oh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but nothing will ever be forgiven. Is he playing a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with us? What is he doing here? I mean, really, think about this. But these words are intentional. Remember, truly, truly, I say to you. And he says, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Notice the never, forever, and eternal also to signifying forever and ever. So friends, where do we go with this? What is the unforgivable sin? I have listed these up there, and I know they're hard to read. I want to go through these one at a time and tell you what they're not. Giving you comfort, hopefully, giving you challenge, but I'll read these slowly as I go through them. Some with more explanation, some with less. But for sake of time, let me tell you what the unpardonable, unforgivable sin is not. First, it is not, this unforgivable sin is not limited to the day of Christ. Some have said that this unforgivable sin was only unique to Jesus' time, and you had to be there in the moment with Jesus. But that's not true, because verse 28 shows us that it's a global thing. All sin, this is speaking to all people, so universal it doesn't make any sense. So to say that this happened only one time in Jesus' time, that you can't commit this anymore, uh, makes the verse 28, all sins in all places, restricted. But it's not restricted. Nowhere does it say it can only be committed in the day of Jesus. It says all, it implies all people. So yes, this is still in play today. Secondly, this is not a sin of unbelief in general. Look, everyone dies in unbelief. Friends, you don't need last rites. You don't need me to come to you at your deathbed to forgive you of your sins. If you're forgiven in Christ, if you die having just had a fight with your best friend who's another Christian and you haven't asked forgiveness, God is still taking you to heaven. Isn't that great? Praise the Lord, because you know what you'd have to, I don't know how you do this. How do you get in a state where you never sin, and you have to predict your death, and you have to be at a place where you're completely forgiven to give them, and that's not the gospel. Jesus spoke in a day where there was much, much unbelief, and in addressing the crowd, he knew that gospel truth and others would follow him, and as a result, he knew that they would die in unbelief, even as followers. This sin is not intended for all, but it is for some. And number three, let me just encourage you with this. This is a sin that cannot be committed by a true Christian. Can we all take a collective sigh of relief? A true Christian. What Jesus seems to be saying here is, some would, well, some would say a Christian can commit this, but our Lord teaches that those who have eternal life shall never perish. Aren't you grateful for that? What can separate us from the love of God? Neither height, nor death, nor principalities, nor things to come. Demons, angels, nothing, Romans 8 tells us. John 10, uh, 27-29, Jesus said that no one can snatch you out of his hand. You are his forever. So this is a sin that cannot be committed by a Christian. So if you're a Christian here today and you say, Darren, I have done something so bad in my life that God could never forgive me, this is not speaking to you necessarily. Number four, This is not particular a gross sin like homosexuality or murder or adultery or run the Ten Commandments here. This doesn't seem to be speaking to a particular sin listed in that sort of way. 
it is a sin, and we'll get there in number three, but it is not a particular gross sin. It's not focusing on, if you go rob a bank, you're not going to heaven. It's focusing on blaspheming the Holy Spirit, but not a particular other gross sin. This sin is not denying Christ before others. Number five. Number six, it's not blaspheming the name of Christ. Look, number verse 28. If you've ever used, uh, we were talking in Sunday school about, you know, Leviticus and unintentional sin. If you've ever hit your, you know, hit a hammer and hit a nail and you've, you've hit your thumb and, you, you know, I don't have to spell out for you what may come out of your mouth unintentionally, but you've used words you probably would like to take back. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm sure it's never happened to you, but it's happened to me. But verse 28 reminds us that this, is, this sin is not referring to blaspheming or, 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 de, or decrying the name of Christ. Because verse 28 again, it says, All sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Number seven. This is not saying flippant things about the Holy Spirit. Oh, Holy Spirit, you're like the, the force of Star Wars, like Joe's Witnesses believe, or whatever. That's, it's serious. The Holy Spirit is serious. He's God himself, the third person of the Trinity. That's not in view here of what it seems to be. It's also not in view of 1 John chapter 5. Many of you may have been thinking through this. Uh, I know many of you know the scriptures very well. 1 John chapter 5, I'll just go there for sake of time, says this in verse 16. It says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God to give him life to those who commit sins that don't lead to death. But John says there is a sin that leads to death. I don't say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to to death. It doesn't seem to be the sin of 1 John, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. There's no warrant for that. The problem is if anyone sees his brother, if, if this is a true Christian here, a Christian won't forget his true brother. If there's any one half of one sin left in our soul and God is holy, then one unforgiven sin would bar us from entering heaven. But thank God he's taken it all. So what is this? I mean, Darren, if it's not these lists of things, then what is this? Why did Jesus say this? Why is this important to us? Let's get there. We're going to spend the rest of our about 15 minutes on this passage. Go to, uh, we'll go to number three. What the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is or the unforgivable sin. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. Uh, in, in preparing for this sermon, I, I went across many well-intended articles, and I'm not the chief of these things, but it's amazing what false information is out there. I pray this clears some things up by God's grace. So what is the unpardonable sin? Number one, it is a willful rejection of the Spirit's witness regarding the full truth about Jesus Christ. Now, we are Baptists, right? We like food, we like all those great things, and we like all those things. The, the Holy Spirit seems to be this red-headed stepchild off on the yonder, and you know we, we pray, Spirit, come, but we're not sure we want the Spirit to come. We might become Bapticostal or kind of weird, you know, Weird things in between. But, friends, the Holy Spirit is real. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit within you. He lives within you. He guides, directs, convicts you of sin, and a whole list of other things. And what is happening here, it seems, in verse 29, is this person who is committing the blasphemy, the unforgivable sin, is re denying every gospel truth about Jesus Christ. They've committed against the work of the Spirit when He brings the whole light of Jesus to the human heart. They've rejected the enlightenment that comes, and with that comes the unforgivable sin. I will ask you to turn with me very briefly to Hebrews chapter 6, if you hold your spot there, to go to Hebrews chapter 6. 
and it won't be up on the screen. So uh, if you're taking notes or you want to just flip there, if you will, Hebrews chapter 6. And this book is rife with these promises, and this unforgivable sin is also spoken of in these passages. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4, and I'll just read through it and give some commentary as we go through. But it says this. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4 says, It is impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened. Let's stop right there. It's impossible for those who've once been enlightened. It comes to the point where people who commit this unforgivable sin have, by God's grace, been given the knowledge of how to come to Jesus. And they want nothing to do with it. They've tasted it. Look at verse, goes on. They who have been enlightened, verse 6, verse 4 of Hebrews, who have tasted the heavenly gift. What does that mean? Some would say this means that these people who've committed this unforgivable sin used to be Christians, and now they've walked away from the faith. But that doesn't make any sense because the Bible says that Jesus will lose none that are his. So who are these people? These are people, clearly, who have been taught God's word, who have understood the Spirit's clear understanding in their heart, but, but they have said, no, no, no. And it goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 6, they've tasted the heavenly gift, ooh, and they've shared in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Does this mean, Darren, that, that we can lose our salvation? No, that's not what this is saying. It means that they have been around the folks, folks like you, Christians, who have been a part of the church. They've, they've not only heard the gospel, they've been enlightened by the gospel, but they've, they've rejected the gospel, but they've experienced a blessing of being around Christian people. And still, it goes on in Hebrews chapter 5, and they've tasted the goodness of the word of God. They've sat under preaching. They've sat under teaching. And the powers of the age to come, they've seen miraculous things done in the name of Christ. But verse 6, as scary as this is, Hebrews 6, 6, And then they have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying or re-crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and their own contempt. Do you get a picture of who commits this unforgivable sin? These are people, especially in relation to Hebrews, that are people who have grown up around the Word, They've experienced the power of the word. They've experienced the power of fellowship as imperfect as Christians can be at times. They've seen awesome things done in the name of Christ. They've heard all the truth. But when it comes down to that moment of decision, they have said, absolutely not. I want nothing to do with this God. They want all the benefits of being a Christian or being around Christians or everything that comes with it. But they want nothing to repent and believe the gospel. Do you see that? Can a Christian commit this? Church, the answer is no. We are referring to people who sit in pews for years, or in our case, perhaps chairs. We're referring to people who at once were so on fire, quote-unquote, for Jesus Christ, and they were involved, and they were, they were in charge of things, and then all of a sudden, it's just like the light switch went off, and they walked out the door never to be seen again. The deacons go and visit them. And they try and wrestle them down, and then seven deacons go, and then the pastor says, well, deacons, let me step in. The pastor rest, tries to wrestle them down spiritually. I just say, no, no, no. No, no, no. That's the person Jesus is referring to, it seems, and that's who Hebrews is referring to. People who have known, especially in the context of Hebrews, so much about Christ, 
want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. This is why understanding how you are saved really impacts how you share and grow in the gospel. If someone says, I'm a Christian, but continues to walk 180 opposite of that for the rest of their lives, we would eventually, by the fruit of their lives, put them in these categories. We are not to judge their salvation. We are not the salvation police. I do not have a license that says, I have a Missouri license, and it looks really funny, right? I don't have salvation police noted on that. We don't have a scanner. I joke with you a lot about this, don't I? That says, boop, 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 Christian. Or, bong, nope, you're not a Christian. That would make our job so much easier, wouldn't it? We don't have that. But we have the power of the Word of God, and we know them by their fruits. It is a willful rejection of the Spirit's power. That is what this is. Number two, you can turn back to Mark chapter 3. There's other passages, but for sake of time, we're going to go back to Mark chapter 3. You said, Darren, you said there's a point of no return. We'll get there. But I want you to see this. And there's an increasing sin, number two, of rejecting the Spirit's testimony of Christ. Actually, go to, if you will, uh, go back to Mark chapter 2. I'll have you turn with me there. Uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 5. I want you to see this in the lives of the Pharisees. Just very quickly. I have a couple minutes extra than I thought. Mark chapter 2 and verse 5 says this. I want you to see how the Pharisees themselves were part of this plan. Mark chapter 2 and verse 5 tells us that, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does Jesus, this man, speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Do you see what's happening? These Pharisees, these religious leaders were blaspheming against Jesus, how he could speak in such a way. They looked square in the noonday sun of the gospel and refused it even when a person received the gospel itself. Go down to verse 15 of Mark chapter 2, just about 10 verses down. Mark 2, 15, same chapter. And as he, Jesus, reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus said this to them, verse 17, Those who are well need no physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. These men were so eager to see Jesus and prove him wrong, to uphold themselves, that they continue to increase the rejection of God's Spirit. They couldn't deny the miracles, but they could deny the fact they believed Jesus was said he was. Look, the same sun that hardens the clay also melts the snow. You know that? I hope you got your snow shovels ready. That's coming sooner rather than later. The same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. And for someone to commit this unforgivable sin, there is an increasing rejection of everything the Spirit is doing in their lives. Number three, go back, we can go back to Mark chapter three. You're getting your thumb exercised today. That's what it is. Mark chapter three, you know that number three, there's a contorted sin of attributing to Christ the works of the devil. Look back at Mark chapter three at, at the beginning verses there of our reading. Verse 22, Mark three twenty-two. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He, that is Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul. And not only that, but he cast out demons by the prince of demons. 
hey, Jesus, you don't need Halloween. You're already possessed, buddy, and you're really off your rocker. And they said that he was casting out demons by demons, and therefore everything he did was demonic. And they were so blind. But friends, someone who commits the unforgivable sin is willing to say, yes, even Jesus is of the devil, even if they don't believe in the devil. That phrase, Beelzebul, if you're curious about that, that is the only time that's ever used in the Gospels. It's referring to, as the first century Jews believed, in a very specific form of Satan himself. It is like, I don't want to over-exaggerate this, but in modern-day terms, it's like saying the worst possible things you could say about someone in the worst possible ways you could say something about someone. Does that make sense? That's what he's doing here. So, to commit the unforgivable sin, you are basically saying, Jesus, your stuff is of the devil. You're basically rejecting it, and you're basically saying, I want nothing to do with it. And then finally, number four, before we apply this, the unforgivable sin is a malicious sin of assaulting the Holy Spirit who's testifying about Jesus Christ. You ever known, there's the story in the scriptures about uh, three kings. King Zedekiah, I'll just give you these quickly. King Zedekiah. Uh, Ray, where you at, brother? My buddy Ray, uh, uh, many of you know Ray. We were reading through Jeremiah right now, and uh, there's a passage in Jeremiah that just came up of King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah, before Jerusalem was going to fall, calls in Jeremiah, the prophet, privately. And he calls him in and says, really, tell me what's going to happen. Is this city going to be destroyed? And Don't tell anyone you're here, Don't because he's going to get in trouble. And Jeremiah says, look, you just got to surrender yourself, dude. Just go out to the Babylonians, surrender yourself, and you and your family and these nobles will live. He says, great, okay, okay, okay. And Ray, we know this from our reading. He doesn't do that, does he? In his pride, he rejects the word of the Lord and walks out and ends up his, his, his family dies, his nobles die, and, and he loses his eyesight. Another thing comes up. King Herod was a great friend of John the Baptist. You remember this? John the Baptist was great friends with King Herod, and he would speak to him about all these things of the kingdom of God, and Herod would reject it and reject it and reject it and reject it. And when John the Baptist's head got cut off, he was sad. What about King Agrippa, I believe it was? King Agrippa in the book of Acts used to call Paul privately to his quarters, or he'd actually go to jail with him, and, and Paul would testify him to about the kingdom of God, but, but the king would, just wouldn't commit and, and wouldn't do this. And when it says in Acts that when he talked about forgiveness of sin and the judgment to come, he wanted nothing to do with it. These are your people who've committed the unforgivable sin. Those who've basically said, I want nothing to do with the Holy Spirit He's not speaking through you. He doesn't care about you. It's all what it is. Friends, is there a point of no return? There is. Let me show you. If you are in those spots, those were big leaders of the time, but there remains no offer of grace for these people. Verse 29 says they've never had forgiveness. The result is, John 12 says, John 12, 37 through 40 says, we're blinded by God never to see the truth of God again. That their ears are closed by God never to hear the truth again, Romans 11, verse 8. That one's conscience is so desensitized never to feel the truth of God again. That one's mind is deluded by the power of God never to grasp the truth again. That one's soul is abandoned by God, Romans 1, 18 through chapter 2, etc., 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 there is a point of no return for someone at some time. Now, pastor, how do you know when that is? Great question. I have no idea. Well, you're supposed to be the expert. Well, 
Guys, we don't know. We're not the salvation police. This is why we are to be faithful to share the gospel everywhere we go. You, someone would look at the thief on the cross and say, that dude has committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He's done all these things. There's no hope left for him, but he was the one that had the soft heart, wasn't he? That said, Lord, remember me when you go to your kingdom today. And what did Jesus tell him? Not maybe, not hopefully, not in a thousand years, but today you will go with me to paradise. Friends, this is very real. This blasphemy, this rejecting of the Holy Spirit is very real. And all the words are true. But you and I don't know when that is for each person. So don't presume or assume that on anybody. Well, Darren, you just don't know my best friend. Man, I've shared the gospel with him so many times. I could write a book about it. I could go and talk about it all the time. And I've prayed for him for 40 years. Then you keep praying for 40 more until God takes you home. Because we don't know. We do know this is real. We do know that the consequences of rejecting Christ are real, but we have no idea when that point of no return is. Look, when someone rejects the gospel, that is praise to God. When they accept the gospel, that's praise to God. When they say, tell me more, that's praise to God. It's all praise to God. You be faithful. We should be faithful. If we evangelize in this neighborhood and we knock on doors, we have a big event and people say, I want nothing to do with Jesus ever again because they shared Jesus with me, then praise the Lord for that. If we've done it with grace, humility, truth, boldness, all those things, we should. Pray hard until the cows come home. I don't know if you have cows. If you don't, then pray until God takes you home or until God takes them home, okay? Four quick things, and I'll leave you with this. I'm just going to zip through these. I know our time is short. You know me. Prepare more. Talk fast. That's just two and a half years in. You know the drill. What do we know from this? If you're not a Christian here today, now is God's open enrollment period in the kingdom. Today is the day of salvation. If you're here today, this is your chance. The Bible says you have sinned, you've fallen short of God's glory. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is a friend of sinners, but because he's a true friend and a good friend, he calls you, if you're not a Christian, to repent and believe only in him. I'd love to talk to you about that. We're not going to force you to make a decision. We're not going to twist your arm. We're not going to make you go through 12 steps. We just want to sit and talk to you. Find us after service. Uh, Pick on Brother Jim back. Jim, our deacon of the month, is in the back. If you have questions, he's at the door. He's a cop. He can tell you and twist you. He can do all sorts of things. He's a physical guy. But I can tell you, he has a sensitive heart to the Lord and wants to share the gospel. And he'll sit down with you and tell you the truth about it and give you a big bear hug right behind it as well. Again, secondly, if you're worried that you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you probably have not. The idea of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit includes the removal of any desire to be reconciled to Jesus. It is God who puts the desire to come to Him. So if you fear about having reached that point of no return, it's good proof you probably have not. If you want to repent, God is always receiving you. He will no wise cast you out for any reason for anyone who comes to Him. John 6, 37. Third, and you'll see it up there, uh, if you continue to struggle with the fear of this unpardonable, unforgivable sin, don't struggle alone. Let your brothers or sisters in this church, Christian, help preach the gospel to the deepest, darkest areas of your life you fear have caused you to believe this. But know that if you hear this right now, the choice is yours regardless of your past. He who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. 
And if you obey his voice, God will save you. As it says, as the old hymn says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. And lastly, if you have put on Christ, you are as secure as Christ is secure. Since Christians are hidden with Christ and God, to be a Christian is to be secure as Jesus is. And guys, that's security. I always love that uh, you've seen that uh, passing truck. It has the owners. I think it's um, uh, LifeLock is the name of the company. I don't, we're not here to advertise them, but it has the um, uh, goodness the uh, social security number of the owner on the side. And he was saying, "Hey, come get me, guys! Come on, hackers!" Well, eventually someone got his social security number, so it didn't quite his LifeLock didn't quite work even for the owner of the company. But praise God, the more secure in Christ I believe myself to be, the more free I am to risk losing social capital with others. I'm willing to risk whatever it is for Jesus, both between the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ. Because when I don't feel secure in Christ and all those things, it reminds me that I am. Don't let your feelings dictate your faith. Let your faith dictate your feelings. When I do feel secure, Satan and his arrows are like annoying gnats. You know, you just kind of hit them around everywhere with the gospel. Gospel, 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 gospel. Flee Satan out of here. Guys, we have a great God. Let us pray today as we close. Father, thank you so much for this morning. This is not our usual text, our usual manner, our usual way, or perhaps it is. I don't know. But Lord, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, I pray that you open our eyes to see where we are. Father, I thank you that neither height nor death or anything in all creation can ever separate us from the love that is in you, and that, Lord, uh, you are holding us, as Jude 24 and 25 reminds us. Father, we don't believe in the security of the believer, because that's what Baptists always do. We believe it, because that's what the Bible says, and I thank you for that. Father, we pray for those in our lives who seemingly have hit this point of no return. Let us be faithful to pray and trust both in your sovereignty and both in the responsibility that you've given us to share the gospel, to rebuke, correct, and, 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 and uh, admonish, as Second Timothy says. Father, help us to do all things to your glory. I pray for any Christian in here struggling with the doubt that your forgiveness includes whatever sin is floating past their mind's eye right now. Would you just lay the gospel on them, Lord, today? Would you, Holy Spirit, smack down them with the gospel as only you can? Father, thank you that there's one way to heaven. It's through Christ. Thank you that the way is clear. Open our eyes to see it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join us in standing as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper this afternoon, this morning? whatever it is. If you're here and you don't know Christ, we'll be up front. If you're here and you do know Christ, we'll be up front for prayer, to talk. We'll set a time. You pray to God, Lord, prepare my heart as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper.